0: Hello, and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast, a special podcast series led by registered dietitian and nutritionist Lisa Jones. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or consultant 360.
1: Hello, and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast where we communicate the information you need to know now about the science, psychology, and strategies behind the practice of dietetics. Today's episode is the impact of rare disease on nutrition. Today, my guest is Beth Wright and Michelle Shooker. I want to introduce Beth first. Welcome, Beth. Hi. Thank you, Lisa. Beth Wright is a pediatric clinician, certified lactation consultant, fellow of the Academy, Speaker, author, website designer, and camp counselor, who currently works at the new Middletown Family Pavilion of CHOP in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. CHOP's new community-based hospital, along with the clinical nutrition supervisor, Beth is the first dietitian to work at this brand new facility, which opened its doors at the end of January 2022. Overall, Beth has been an employee at CHOP for 18 years and has been called the jack-of-all-trades, being the first dietitian to be able to cross cover and provide staff relief in multiple inpatient and outpatient pediatric settings. So it sounds like you don't sleep. Yes. Huh? <laughs> no, I don't. I never sleep. <laughs> so, so welcome. I'm looking forward to hearing all your experiences at CHOP. Thank you. And we also mm-hmm. have Michelle Shuker. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm glad you're here. And Michelle, who has many, many credentials, which you can refer to on the website as well as Beth, is a clinical program coordinator, nutritionist in the Center for Pediatric Eosonophilic Disorders at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. All right. So I will begin by asking you four questions and let's start with Michelle. So Michelle, if you can tell us about the rare disease that you see most in your specialty area.
2: So all I do all day, every day is is see patients with eosinophilic disorders, primarily eosinophilic esophagitis. That is the most common of the allergic GI disorders. And essentially, I mean, obviously we have a center dedicated to it, but that's what I do. I used to see some general food allergy patients, you know, over the years, and there certainly are many of our patients who have ige mediated allergies and sort of you know allergies people are used to hearing about but those are the patients i see and i'm also the the coordinator of the program the program manager and the go-between essentially between allergy and, and gi in communication with families and developing treatment plans and you know i run the second opinion program for us too so it's eoe which is the abbreviation for eosinophilic esophagitis feel free to use that all day every day <laughs>
1: Thank you, Michelle. It sounds like you're extremely busy as well. And I like the abbreviation EOE because a follow-up question, which wasn't on my list, but I do have to ask, how much time do you think you spend trying to help people say it, pronounce it correctly? Because it's not (laughs) an easy word. And
2: the the specific answer to that question is a lot. (laughs) Yes, it is. You know, I always tell families that once you get it, it's going to roll off your tongue but it is a hard one to get. I always tell this story about when I shifted into this role, because for my first six years at CHOP, I was in the nutrition department it was outpatient clinical manager, blah, 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 and was doing part of this role, the clinical part of this role in just a different capacity. But before we, you know, patients would get diagnosed, they'd see allergy, they'd come see me, you know, and then we had the ability to start this program where we were all together for the same clinic. But anyway, Once I shifted into my role in allergy, which required me to defect essentially from nutrition into allergy, my sister, one of my sisters had called me at work one day and got my voicemail. And so she heard me say, you know, Center for Pediatric Eosinophilic Disorders. And the first line of her message to me was, what is this snuffleupagus thing you're doing?
1: (laughs) So so there you go. (laughs) Oh, I like that. That's a good one. (laughs) Snuffleophagus. <laughs> EOE. And then you said, just say EOE. Well, thank you. Ah, just say it because that's what we yes. all think. <laughs> I like that story, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> Beth, how about you? How about you tell us? And I know it's not the same one, but tell us about a rare disease you see the most in your particular specialty area.
0: When I was covering outpatient cardiology and I was there for about 10 years, I wouldn't say it was a lot, but it was just definitely, like you said, rare. So there would be these teenagers presenting with something called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And you can say that 10 times fast without stumbling, right? POTS for short. Pots. Let's just go <laughs> with the abbreviation here. Today. We'll just go with the abbreviation POTS. <laughs> and so when they came in, it was more even how to get any type of nutrition in them because it, it's, it's hard with all the symptoms they're having and all the medication they were on. Usually the cardiologist would refer them or sometimes the neurologist, they would see so many different specialists. And it's, it's a type of rare syndrome where it might not take until about five or even 10 years to diagnose until you finally say, Oh, this is what it is. You're having GI symptoms. You're having had headaches, you're having the circulation problem. And so, by the time it's diagnosed, then you can treat, you just treat the symptoms, you can't cure it. And so, by the time they would come to me, they're either at like their wits' end on trying to, you know, prevent more weight loss if that's happening, or just to nourish their bodies just to get through this time period because all of a sudden. Sometimes this can just show up during uh, puberty and it can just go away by the time they're in college or a little bit after. So it was an interesting group of individuals and, and they all presented differently Why I was in cardiology.
1: Well, that's really interesting because the thing that I would think that would happen is once they get to you, Beth, after trying to figure out for that of oh. time, five to 10 years, didn't you see them have some relief at the same time like i finally found out what it was now i can treat the symptoms even though there's yes not a and no answer.
0: either yes we finally have an answer or no we're so frustrated right now can anyone help us type deal so yeah it was a mixture it was a mixture and 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 each not only did each patient present differently each parent presented differently so yeah, it was, it was just like that, like either relief or continued frustration, mainly most often the continued frustration.
1: Well, that is a long, I, I can imagine.
0: Mm-hmm. And many
1: people don't have patience in five to 10 years. Nope. <laughs> like, like, especially right. if you're trying to figure out what's wrong with you, like you're mm-hmm. five to 10 years is a really long time. It so is. I can see mm-hmm. how that would, that would be. And then you're not only by that point, you're not only treating actual patient which is the pediatric patient but then the parent too because you have the parents
0: Mm -hmm. it's frustrating i always felt very bad for them
1: that's very interesting Mm -hmm. though so then let me ask you this beth what are some common nutrition interventions that you can share with other clinicians like other dietitians that may be encountering the same thing in their practices
0: so most of these kids, the so number one thing that you do, you have them drink a lot of fluid. So about, if you calculate their fluid needs, it'll come out to about 1.5, to about two times maintenance, so, or even higher than that. So, uh, and that's very challenging to have a teenager just constantly drink all day, keep drinking, have this beverage next to you, have anything next to you, water, beverages that have salt in them. So that's the second one. First one is a lot of fluid to help circulate the blood and everything. And then the second one is a lot of salt. So instead of dumping salt on food, because the other challenge is having them try to eat the amount of calories they need, period, because they might have issues with constipation. So they're not able to eat so much, or they have gastroparesis where you have delayed emptying of your stomach. So they can only tolerate smaller amounts um, every so often. So you can't really shove in so much salt, right? So you can encourage salty beverages such as Gatorade, uh, vegetable juice, tomato juice, broth, that's not easy. A kid doesn't really want to drink tomato juice or vegetable juice. An adult might, they might say, oh, can I have that with vodka? Oh, sure. A little <laughs> bit. Yeah. But eating a lot of deli foods, uh, deli meats and cheese, anything you can think of that's so high in salt you should avoid for uh, hypertension. This is the opposite. Those are the different things. And then when it comes to the other stuff, let's say, The gastroparesis is part of it that can or cannot happen with some of them. But like I said, not everyone presents with the exact same symptoms. That's why it takes a while for it to even be diagnosed. Then they have to have smaller volumes of food every so often because you don't want to fill a stomach up that has problems emptying, right, gastroparesis. And then if they have constipation, you do want to encourage some fiber, but not a high amount of fiber, just a moderate amount because you also don't want to aggravate it to develop gastroparesis or anything like that. And a lot of these kids also are very nauseous. So even just having them try to eat is hard. It's a very, it's very difficult thing to treat, but those are the main things for nutrition intervention.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. It sounds to me like as a dietitian or a clinician w- with trying to feed them, you're walking on a tightrope. There was a lot of, right. like, like, that's not easy.
0: Right. One girl, one girl I had on like a fluid pump just to get enough fluids into her. It was interesting. I, th- I think Pen placed it, not chopped. There were some back and forth between some of the specialists and, and shop specialists. doesn't really affect boys, it's mainly in females, but I did have a young boy and he was on NJ feedings, naso-jejunal feedings. So they might have to have some tube feeding sometimes to get them through it. Yeah, that's, that's not a, easy.
1: No, it's definitely not easy. It's mm-hmm. very
0: challenging. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And Michelle, like just looking at over going over back to you with the EOE. Mm-hmm. What type of some common nutrition interventions can you share that would help other clinicians in the same situation?
2: So, the main cause of EOE is food allergy and not the traditional food allergy we're used to hearing about where you eat a peanut and you anaphylax. It's a different mechanism of, of the immune system that's driving this cell mediated response. That's what we're dealing with in EOE. So, traditionally, the and Still, to this day, the the majority of kids are treated with diet restrictions. So the same as you would do with any other food allergy, you're talking about complete elimination of that food. Now, there are varying ways to do this. There are, it's seemingly like, you know, there's just a lot of variations on that theme. And there is no, you know, one size fits all with that treatment, mainly because although we know what the most common foods to cause this are, and we will... You know, with that, if those foods are in the diet, we'll act accordingly. There is no perfect way to identify those foods that are causing the trouble ahead of time. So that with, you know, let's say an IgE-mediated allergy, someone eats a peanut and they anaphylaxis, You know, that you have this clinical response that tells you what's happening, and almost always, that clinical response is going to be backed up by, let's say, a, a positive skin test. If they go to the allergist and they get skin testing done, that test is positive. But that type of testing is really only useful for that type of allergy, even though in the EOE world, a lot of allergy testing has been done over the years. And we at CHOP used to do a whole lot of that too. But what we and other large centers learned over the years is that they've been with the general, general EOE population. Because allergy testing is fraught with false positive results, false negative results, Chief among them, we, so milk or dairy products is the most common food to cause EOE, and yet very often you'd see a negative allergy test to milk. Even if we were doing, let's say, patch testing, which looks for the, the risk of a delayed reaction to a food. So we used to do a lot of that too, but again, in the end, there was no real advantage to putting everybody through that. So there are varying schools of thought to how to go about restricting your diet, how, how um, restrictive to be, but, and, and I, perhaps I'll get into that later because that is a, that's a big part of this, but to answer your question specifically, it all comes down to the diet restriction and how many foods are removed. So if we're talking about, you know, a CHOP, we tend to not remove large groups of foods at one time. You know, we used to end up doing that if we had, if when we did a lot of testing and kids would test positive to lots of foods and then you yanked all these foods out of the diet and, you know, we really weren't asking like, oh, to, you know, what's the degree of exposure to these foods? Are you really eating bananas? A lot, you know, something like that. We're, so anyway, point is, is that we tried to scale it down so that we are, you know, we, we try to take as focused in an approach as possible. And typically that means if someone has dairy products in their diet on a regular basis, that's the first food to come out. Or perhaps we do milk and wheat, which is the next most common food. But so as with, IgE-mediated food allergies, you know, we have to make sure that removing those food or foods doesn't, you know, we have to be careful about not creating a deficit for calories, for protein, for specific micronutrients. So all of those things can be at risk depending upon the food that's removed or the number of foods that are removed. So that's, you know, the biggest clinical issue at the outset But because we have to keep in mind, as we all do, no matter what we do, quality of life, it's easier nowadays because there's so many, you know, allergen-free foods available versus years ago that on paper, you know, you could remove 10, 12, 13 foods from someone's diet and be able to, you know, put something into food processor that looks great, but you make that person miserable. And years ago, we didn't have that many options. So the diets were more uh, restrictive and the resulting foods for the patients. It was no fun. So a lot of times we would end up putting, especially our younger patients on um, elemental diets where they get, you know, all or just about all of their nutrition from elemental formula and probably needn't go into all less along with that. I mean, there are times when it is the most appropriate therapy, but these days, not when we look at for first line treatment for you know, nearly all of our patients. But um, so that carries with it, of course, all.
1: So while Beth is walking on a tightrope, it sounds like you're trying to solve a puzzle. That yes, is that's a challenge, a challenging puzzle, I should say.
2: Yeah, that's exactly uh, what it is. That's how we refer to it. There's all this, you know, you speak in like crime show metaphors. It's like, you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out which food caused it. And, you know, I'm such a dinosaur that I'll keep repeating the same thing. Like, well, we have to find out, you know, who was it at and all that stuff. But- What that speaks to, you know, what I try to get at when I'm talking to families, and especially when you're talking to, you know, the physicians, especially these fellows, younger fellows, as we're starting to, you know, wanting to make sure that they are approaching this in in the right way, our way, because of course our way is always right, (laughs) is what, what all that speaks to is the need to get an accurate history. You know, and if I drive home one thing, you know, about treating EOE, and if you're going to treat with diet, because you don't always have to, if you are, you must get an accurate diet history. It doesn't make any sense to say, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, remove a six-food elimination diet or an eight-food elimination diet. It makes zero sense to remove foods that aren't in the diet or aren't in the diet on a regular basis you know, which is why, you know, you always say, what are the most common foods to cause this? And what's the degree of exposure and, and work from there?
1: I mean, each case is different. So it's like, you're, you're, yes. awake, you're, you're doing a new, like, you're not following a specific protocol each time, right? Because everybody's different. You can't, you can't standardize. Right. This. Yep. Exactly right. I find that so fascinating, which brings me to my next question, Michelle would have been some of your successes that will help other colleagues working with this particular population. And it sounds like one of the things I heard you say loud and clear was getting that accurate diet history, because without it, how are you going to be successful?
2: Exactly right. And it's something that seems so, I mean, you know, even when we used to do lots of allergy testing, you know, you would get so caught up in, you know, in, in trying to just devise a plan that often, you know, it's like, okay, all these are positive. These allergy tests are positive and But, you know, over time you realize, all right, well, they're positive. That's it. It doesn't mean anything else other than that. Mm-hmm. That's what a positive allergy test means in this particular setting. It's only positive. It does not mean you're allergic. It does not, you know, with this type of food allergy, the, the only test, the truest test, actually, it's the only test that's going to tell you what's happening or pinpoint that causative food is the endoscopy and biopsies. That is the only way to know what is happening, the only way to be able to definitively assess the treatment. So I would say that a lot of the successes, because we do see a lot of second opinions, very often come from just that. It is backtracking, asking families, you know, we'll get all the records, I'll go through everything, look at their history with their their biopsy results and, and the diets they were on. And, you know, to this day, there are a lot of centers, I mean, no shade, but there are a lot of centers that will still follow this very commonly used, you know, six foot elimination diet or eight food elimination diet. And the one of the first things I always ask every family is, okay, so you took out all these foods, which of these were you really eating? You know, you were eating dairy. Okay. You're eating wheat like most people do, unless they're avoiding it for some other reason. Were you really getting soy in your diet? Like on purpose, soy, not worrying about... Like, incidental exposure i mean some centers do but we have not had reason to do that you know how often were you really eating shellfish you know i never eat shellfish okay how often were you eating eggs i hate eggs and sometimes i get eggs baked into the oh okay that's where some of our biggest successes have come from where you're you have to start over again with many of these families but you at least whittle down the list of potential culprits. and yeah we see a lot of success with that oh wow just restarting Mm -hmm.
1: yeah. Go back mm-hmm. to the beginning. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's a great tip though. I think that's helpful. Thank you. So Beth, in terms of thoughts, yeah. what would you say if you can share some of your successes that will help other colleagues, other dietitians working with this population?
0: Instead of like what Michelle was talking about, getting a diet history, this is different. This is getting more of a symptom history. So I, I'm not, obviously, I'm not a doctor, not gonna diagnose, but you also are there, they're, they're frustrated. So they wanna also just talk to somebody and get their frustration out. I did see two girls one time that were in, a, in another hospital setting for, they assumed these girls had eating disorders, treated them like anorexia nervosa because, right, the girls were afraid to eat because it was very uncomfortable. But they weren't deliberately doing it and they weren't deliberately trying to lose weight. And they they were telling me about what happened at this facility till when they came out of the facility. And then I'm seeing them outpatient. And I'm like, oh, okay. So now does this happen when you stand up? Do you get very faint? Do you feel like you're gonna pass out? They're like, yeah. And I know that can go hand in hand with eating disorders too. So you can get, you know, your your blood pressure can drop at times if I'm not being nourished enough. But then I went into all the, all of the other symptoms. i would like, Oh, do you feel you have a foggy brain? How do your feet feel? Do they sometimes get bluish or do they feel numb? Now that's not something you'd ask someone with, with anorexia, you're getting a diet history. Right. And these, these girls were like, yeah, they're like, well, what are you, what are you getting at? And then I was getting into, all you know, some of the other shakiness, exercise intolerance, um, just because of the the shifts in blood pressure, they just have a hard time. But this is a, a POTS affects the, all, I didn't explain this earlier and I'm sorry, the autonomic system of us. So it, it affects like your blood pressure and what else is in the, auto, your nervous system is part of that your, your GI system. So it affects a a number of things that you can't really that, right. You can't control, but your brain is controlling. Right. And so I did say, I I honestly, I'm sorry. It sounds like you want to eat. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, that's not common in anorexia. They don't want to eat. So I said, Hey, At this time, I referred him, I I reached out to the cardiologist who specialized this. And at the time it was Dr. Boris with CHOP, but he's not with CHOP any longer. There's other specialists now that see them. And I reached out to him about my concerns about these Girls, I said, can you have them be scheduled for a cardiology appointment? That was the number one. You can also send them to GI2 to be looked at for any gastro dysmotility going on also. So those are the first two people. And I think they already had neurology on board for headaches, but that was one of the success stories that I felt really good about because I, I honestly did not feel they had anorexia at all. I was just like, this isn't adding up to an eating disorder, this is disordered eating from feeling uncomfortable with eating.
1: Thanks Beth, that's incredibly so, helpful because I think it's, well, Thank you. one of the things is, especially if dieticians aren't used to it, like you're kind of giving them like a roadmap to follow. If something like this pops up, like what, right. what can they check off? And then who can they mm-hmm. refer to? Because one of those things True. is you never know, like, where do I send this? Who, who can help me to kind of solve mm-hmm. this problem? And I look at it as problems we're all solving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, you, Beth, about what is on the horizon for POTS and what impact does it have in terms of the nutrition field?
0: Since I last saw these individuals separately in my cardiology clinic, is now there's an innovative program, they call it, or a uh, multidisciplinary program and clinic that the kids can see. That's, it's amazing. There is a team of about 10 people. So there's, I think neurology is in there. There's GI, cardiology, physical therapy, psychology, and I might be missing another discipline. And the patient will now come to this clinic for the whole day, pretty much hours, right? They'll see half of the providers in the morning, and then they'll see the other half in the afternoon. And what the team does is in the middle of the day, and at the end of the day, they'll regroup and talk about each patient for the other providers who haven't seen them. And so that has been the most amazing thing for this population ever is to have all of the services under one roof and saying, Oh, next week I have neurology next week. I have my cardiologist appointment. Oh, in two weeks from now, I have, instead of seeing so many different people, different times and the parents taking off from work, taking their children, right. And the children taking off from school, you can just see them in one day and have one whole disciplinary team, see them. So that's, what is on the horizon for them? A multidisciplinary team approach and an innovative program. I love that. That is such a great idea. It's like a
1: one-stop yes. shop for all mm-hmm. your medical appointments. They should have that yep. for everything, not just pod. Pretty much. Thanks, Beth. Michelle, how about for <laughs> EOE? Like, what are you what are you seeing on the horizon and the impact on nutrition?
2: For now, and 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 just to to mention we we do see, not that I have numbers on this, but, but over the years, and even now we've seen a fair number of kids who do have POTS. And I don't want to take up time with this question, but when Beth was talking about, you know, the whole misdiagnosing or confusing these symptoms mm-hmm. for the indicative of a different diagnosis, we'll see that too. And POTS patients is a, is a really good example because these, a lot of these kids will come to us, you know, of course I Probably do have symptoms of EoE, but it, but one of the chief symptoms of EoE is you know discomfort when eating or an in you know an unwillingness to eat. No mm-hmm. matter what you're eating, it's not for everybody, but it happens very often. And we will see kids come in, from, you know, they're just not eating well at all. They feel horrible, you know. Like, and ah, you know, so we treat uh, treat their EoE, and their bodies would be totally normal, and yet they might still feel mm-hmm. horrible. And you know, it's interesting where I. I think that, you know, it'll be very interesting looking forward and having people be aware of the fact that, I mean, it could be that. Obviously, if someone's not feeling better when you expect them to, you're thinking about what else right. it might be. Right. Um, but I think historically, not many of us had thought of POTS as being this thing that could be responsible for all of these other symptoms. You often think like, oh, they're just depressed or, oh, they're with Right. Or, yeah. oh, they're in exercise. Mm-hmm. If they just exercise they feel better. And while that might be true in some regard, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes it, it it really is confounding. But on the horizon for EOE is for our profession, unfortunately, it has nothing to do with us. But <laughs> in terms of the disease itself, we are now able to use biologic therapy, because mm-hmm. Dupixent. PiliMab has just been approved by the FDA for use in eosinophilic esophagitis. So historically, it's been used to treat eosinophilic asthma. You've probably seen the commercials Mm. for that. -hmm. It's also been uh, used to treat eczema. And many of our patients have all these other atopic conditions. So many of them will have asthma. Many of them have eczema. Not necessarily eosinophilic asthma, but your regular (laughs) asthma. But so many records will have that. We had gotten depicted approved for some of our patients who did have severe eczema, but now it is approved for use in kids over the age of 12 and over I think 40.5 kilos to be used. And it could be used as a first line if the family so choose. We actually just had a meeting about it, all of us on our multidisciplinary uh, team discussing the role of biologics and where we sort of maybe see this going and whether or not, you know, how likely we may be to, to use it as first-line treatment. Or I think for us, you know, we've we've historically wanted to use diet as often as we could to treat, but there are circumstances where it is just not the best thing at that time. So our alternative to that, medically speaking, has been to use swallowed or topical steroids. So asthma medications that are used off label to treat EOE. So instead of you know using an inhaler and inhaling medication in there, you actually swallow mm-hmm. it, or instead of using a nebulizer with budesonide and inhaling that, you actually swallow it, and they're very effective, and we've for years used them for kids who, you know, instead of diet as first line, or if we've not gotten anywhere with, you know, rounds and rounds of diet restriction, we, we've used that successfully, but now there is this monoclonal antibody that we can use to treat. There are, I know that there are plenty of families who would prefer to, to use that versus
1: Stories, so it sounds like very promising. That's, that's yeah. good news. It's not going to solve it, right? You're still going to have to be the puzzle solver yeah. there, Michelle. How about sharing one story or analogy showcasing your work? So we'll start with you, Michelle, for that. I hate
2: to go back to the previous story, but honestly, I mean, yes, we're restricting the diet. So yes, we have to figure out a way to, to make up for whatever de- deficits we're creating. So of course, you know, you're going to up calories, One, day. you're going to add protein a different way. You're going to, And obviously there's a skill to that, of course, and that primarily comes with experience. And I don't want to say anybody can do that because I don't think anybody can. But honestly, I think that absolutely, because I've been doing this for so long, you know, it was early on, luckily, that I was able to, you know, just you're able to develop that skill of really going, what are we doing with this yanking foods out of the diet when no Mm -hmm. one's eating them to begin with? Like, what are we doing? And why, and even if they're eating five, why are we taking away five? Yes, odds are it's more than one food. There are some, there's one school of thought, cast as wide a net as possible with the foods. And that's true. You know, the more foods you remove, the greater the odds of, of cheating remission. But how many fish do you want to catch? Is yeah,
1: so, <laughs> I like that, cast a wide
2: net. Um, so it's quality of life that factors into that. So that remains to this day, like one of, I think it's one of the best skills I developed and certainly that others have too but it has never not been valuable.
1: Never, not one time. Your contributions and such great work you've done over the years. So on behalf of all of us dietitians out there, we thank you. Helping <laughs> oh <God>. others, <laughs> leading the way. Beth, how about for you? How about, you've already shared a bunch of different stories with us, which I appreciate. Yes. So I'm trying to think, Thanks. Do is there any one that stands out for you that you haven't mm. mentioned yet that you... Like it's hmm.
0: specifically in relations to POTS. That one, the one girl, I just felt so, she was on a, like a fluid pump. I, I can't even explain where the fluid pump was going. It was into her stomach. And she was just so debilitated. This was a mom that was very, very frustrated. She came and saw me a couple times and the patient too. And the patient just looked so weak and she was in a wheelchair and they're like, And you just felt so bad. You didn't know what more to do. And she was trying to eat. She just felt so nauseous that she couldn't get everything in. I think I'm at the time when there wasn't a disciplinary clinic, I sent her to the G high for motility. I sent her to her. I'm like, oh, you'll like my friend, Andrea, who does, who deals with kids with motility issues because i just felt like oh my goodness i really she was a challenging patient another girl didn't present so badly she more had like some nausea in the morning and wouldn't eat she was the one i had on like a moderate amount of fiber to help she had the constipation issues so i felt like i was more of a success with her because she wasn't so affected by how that other girl was but when i'm challenged or when I'm faced with the challenging situations, what I want to say, I will deep dive and do, I would write. So I am published with the nutrition intervention for pots. So I, yes, it's, it's, it's about five years old. It was published in 2017, but because this was an area that was so foggy that I just uh, delved deeper into it and put it all together. And just like a, an article. So if that's what, what was successful for me and helpful for me.
1: <laughs> Thank you. That's helpful. We, Thanks. we're going to put that in the show link. So it'll be a resource if anybody's looking to read more about it. Cause just listening to both you and Michelle, I was like, I feel like I need to go educate myself. I don't know enough. <laughs> so I'm not, no. I'm not practicing in this area, but for those that are like, I think just learning, like we never stop learning. So always learning right. more and, and the helpful tips that you both shared. So, I thank you for that. But if you can boil it down into one key takeaway, what would you say? So, what would you say, Michelle, like those that are out there practicing EOE, will be the, besides being able to pronounce it, what would be your number one key takeaway?
2: There is no one size fits all for, for this. No one size fits all. And, you know, every plan has to be individualized. It just has to be.
1: Yes, personalized. So that's good that goes back to like the yep. personalized nutrition we can't hear enough about lately like they're I, acting like I, it's a trend yeah. michelle was doing it the entire time so it's not a trend michelle's been doing that yeah. so. <laughs> Please. Please. <It's> so <laughs> how about you beth how about your one key takeaway for pots so if you can just okay I did two. two key yes.
0: the one is is the piggyback on michelle it's the same thing not not one one size fits all plan. Everyone's different. Just like I said, how each, each individual was di- were dealing with different types of side effects and everything and, and symptoms. Another one is to get the right people together to help with this child or family. So yeah, you may need psychology, you may need cardiology, you may need neurology you may need gi you may need physical therapy and exercise physiologist. Is if there isn't a multidisciplinary program in your area it's getting the right team members involved to work together with this one patient collaboration i love it collaboration that's so good that you have Thank to reach you. out from different areas and different clinics because they're <laughs> not all under one roof like inpatient they're they're all over the place so knowing who's in that area what what cardiologists would you refer to? What you know, all different disciplines that you would want that you have a good rapport with too, and say, "Hey, I've got someone coming to you, and I'm concerned this is going on."
1: That's going to be so helpful. I'm sure the parents are going to love that. We'll <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, you got five different
0: appointments this something. <laughs> well, if they're month all month, in one day,
1: <laughs> they can just they just need to take off one instead of
0: their. Oh, oh the, the program. Yes. Yeah, the
1: program. But before the program.
0: It was, it was harder, a lot harder, right? Yes.
1: Thank you. I learned so much from both of you as I'm sure our listeners will as well. Now is the fun time. Just a couple more questions. We're going to have some fun. You don't know these in advance.
2: So you just, the first thing that <laughs>
1: pops into your mind is your answer. Are you guys ready to play? Mm-hmm. Okay, my yep. first question. Yep. I'll go with Beth first. Beth, what is your favorite summer food? Lobster roll. Lobster Thank you. <laughs> how about you, Michelle? You, I have to go with that.
2: I agree. And not because I couldn't think of something else. That is uh
1: yeah. We're one uh, and the same, probably. Michelle. Yes. Lo- I'm I'm with we're, you. A round of lobster rolls. Okay, <laughs> if I if I invited you to a picnic, what would you bring to the picnic? Beth. Buffalo chicken dip. Buffalo chicken dip. Okay, how about you, Michelle? Tequila. Mm. That, that works. <laughs> okay. you know you always need to bring what mm. you drink mm-hmm. there you go it's a good it's a good bring what you drink okay yeah and then how about the last question michelle i'm going to ask you first what is your favorite activity to do in the summer in the summer i would
2: say so i live at the jersey shore now lucky yeah we moved down here full time i know so of course you know going to the beach and stuff but really what I love best about the summer is is gardening that I get to spend all day outside if I want wearing some floppy old lady hat and getting covered in dirt and I don't care what anyone thinks about it or and you know it's just uh, oh that's
0: great I love that how about you Beth
1: well, Besides jealous of, of Michelle address. living
0: at the beach because <laughs> the beach is, is number one. I, I was just there, <laughs> took my kids for two nights just because I like to go, even though it's chaotic with the little ones. And yeah, we were, we were on the beach. I love, I love the bay. I got married at a yacht club on the bay and I love the, I love the bay, Love anywhere near water. Nice mainly the beach and <laughs> the bay thank you that was yeah. fun i learned more about you both so
1: <laughs> thank you for being on the show and sharing your insights with us we will share all the resources and links as we discussed here and great thank audience thanks for listening and please tune in again and share your comments and feedback on our site have a great day and enjoy a healthier lifestyle with the nutrition four-in-one in mind thanks lisa thanks
0: lisa Wait, I'm waiting thanks for audience you. For more nutrition content, visit consultant360.com.